Good morning, and welcome to episode 351 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballPerspectives.com. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Uh, Do you have any pre-episode banter? Uh, No, I was on Will Leach's podcast earlier today, which is on the No, you're bantering right now. Uh, No, well, I'm explaining, I was just going to explain that I got Uh, a lot of banter out of my uh, system. Okay. We his whole show is is largely banter. It's a very it's a bantery show. It's it's yeah. it's very comfortable to be on his show because it's yes. Uh, even I, even when he steers it in in various directions, you just feel like bantering. It feels like good banter. So, uh, if anybody wants to check out my banter, <laughs> if anyone, it's on it's, it's on Will Leach's podcast. Yeah, if anyone wants to check out my World Series preview on on Will Leach's <laughs> podcast, that's still there too. Yeah, I felt more, much more comfortable on Will Leach's podcast than I did on my own. We should probably just both go on Will Leach's podcast once in a while, and that's it. Um, okay, so transactions, Sam. Uh, teams are making them, and we, we've been analyzing them. Uh, mm. We've been writing about them. Um, and I figured that we could, we could catch up on a few, uh, because... You've written some some interesting things about transactions, and I know you hate to talk about things that you've written, um, but I not as much as you hate to come up with an original topic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, let's touch on a few of these transactions that have been made over the over the past few days. Um, I guess uh, we we should probably thematically we could probably tie a few of these together. Um, because there have been a lot of relievers signed in the last few days. And I've written about some of those guys, and you've written about some of those guys. Um, you, Will Leach. Wrote, Will Leach has probably written about some of those guys. <laughs> probably. Uh, you wrote about the Grant Balfour signing. The Orioles signed Grant Balfour uh, to a two-year, $15 million deal. I wrote about the, the John Axford signing, um, oh, what did you what did you think of the Axford signing? Uh, <laughs> you, you've been really interested about my opinion <laughs> on the Axford signing. Um, you right through me. <laughs> uh, well, I I I think it's kind of an interesting signing, not so much in isolation, but uh, when you look at what Cleveland has done with its closers as a whole over the past decade decade plus, really. Um, that the the current regime has been in charge, it's kind of kind of interesting because uh, they've made a lot of comments this winter. Mark Shapiro made a lot of comments about wanting to trade for someone with closing experience, someone who has had saves in the past. And we often, you know, I guess the the sabermetric orthodoxy is that teams shouldn't pay for saves, and you can make anyone a closer. Um, or at least you can make a lot more people closers than than teams. You can make anybody do. good. Anybody right. good is the standard yes, talking right. point. Right. Um, and so maybe it seems sort of strange for Cleveland, which is one of the the early adopter sabermetric front offices, to be emphasizing saves or emphasizing back end of the bullpen experience. Um, but when you when you look at the the history of of Cleveland closers. It is not, yeah. It is not a distinguished group. Uh, I went back and, and looked at all the Cleveland closers since 2001, 
which is when Mark Shapiro took over as GM. And it is a lot of a lot of Bob Wickman, uh, a lot of Danny Baez, or a little Danny Baez, way more Joe Borowski than I can imagine any team, any other team would have would have tolerated. Um, some Jensen Lewis, some late career Kerry Wood, and the last four years or so Chris Perez, and now Axford. And if you if you add up all these guys' numbers together, and of course the the uh, offensive context has changed over this time, but uh, if you just look at the the standard Cleveland closer line, just looking at the the Indian save leisure from each of these seasons, you get uh, just sort of a generic okay reliever, a, a 3.57 ERA, uh, eight strikeouts per nine innings, and a two and a half strikeout per walk ratio, and they've never really made a, a very long-term commitment to a closer. They've never paid a ton of money for a closer. They've never gone out and imported some elite flamethrowing guy. And really, when you look year by year, they've had better relievers in the bullpen than their closer almost every one of those years. And that is probably the case now with with certainly Cody Allen, who seems like he's at, at least as well-suited to to be a closer type as, as Axford is. Um, so it seems to me that they value having their best relievers in a non-closing role. Uh, and I, I remembered a quote from Terry Francona when he was the Red Sox manager in 2010, when Daniel Bard was dominant as a setup man for Jonathan Papelbon, Papelbon blew seven saves. Um, and people were kind of talking about Bard as the, the heir apparent as closer, and Francona said, when you have a guy that's not pigeonholed into that closer role, oh man, that's an unbelievable weapon, uh, mm-hmm. he said late that season. And he said, uh, just like last week before the Axford signing, about Cody Allen, Cody Allen, we used him in so many high leverage situations. From the sixth inning on, we went to Cody against lefties or righties to snuff out a rally. He was so good at it, and I think he would continue to get better. It's hard to lose a guy like that. And about Brian Shaw, he said he could do it in the ninth. I have no doubt. But what he does earlier is valuable. So it it seems like there's a trend towards signing an established closer or having an established closer, possibly just because the Indians know that players seem to prefer predefined roles and predictability or or that it's easier for a manager to have sort of a a go-to ninth inning guy. But... It doesn't seem to me like they really value the save, despite their their comments about people pitching in the ninth inning. Uh, I think they want to have someone for that role, but they don't really want to break the bank for someone with that role, and they don't think there is any particular closer mentality, it doesn't seem to me. So Axford fits into that group, I think. I, I think there's there are things to, to like about him, certainly. He... He threw a lot harder down the stretch last season, and the Cardinals made some mechanical fixes, of course, and he pitched very well for them, and he's been good in the past. Um, but to me, he sort of fits into that second, third-tier closer group, which is usually what they have. This does come up every once in a while when the the best reliever in a bullpen is clearly the setup guy, and, and someone will point out, well, you know, a lot of times you're facing you're facing tougher hitters in the eighth anyway. In fact, I, I think on average, uh, Joe Posnanski once found that you do face tougher hitters in the eighth. 
uh, and uh, you know you have more flexibility. And so maybe it's a good thing that this eighth inning guy is in the eighth and not pigeonholed into the ninth. And that seems well and good, except that it's it's very rare that the eighth inning guy actually pitches in higher leverage yeah. um, on average than the closer. And I'm sure if you look at the Indians over that time period, it is I, I would I would bet without looking that in in almost all cases the closer had uh, the highest leverage index. So um, it's not as though I mean the the thing is that your eighth inning guy, the way that relievers see these roles quickly gets pigeonholed in an eighth inning situation. Yes, right. And I don't know if the Indians are actually better at breaking that mold uh, or not. Um, I had one year where, for dumb reasons, I was very focused on Vinny Pistano, and I don't remember. <laughs> it, I don't remember looking at him coming into bases loaded in the sixth inning situations mm-hmm. uh, and, and surprising me with how aggressively they used him or anything of the sort. Um, and so while it is, it does seem promising that your best reliever can play more like, you know, a free safety, um, and roam around a little bit, it seems that that doesn't actually happen all that much. Yeah, that is true. And yeah, like in 2011, um, which I think was Chris Perez's maybe first full season as closer, uh, or he had 36 saves and he was fairly effective, but the Indians had four guys who pitched more innings than he did with lower ERAs and were generally just sort of better. Perez struck out uh, 39 guys in 59 innings, and and they had Joe Smith, and they had Rafael Perez, and they had Pestano, and they had Tony Sipp, and all of these guys just sort of being better than him. But but yes, you're you're right. It it is often the case that the setup man is just the eighth inning guy instead of the ninth inning guy. Um, so I. I I guess I, I like the fact that they don't go out and sign the best closer available to a three-year contract or something, but um, but yeah, maybe it is sort of a stretch to say that they're really using their setup men any differently than any other team. It would be interesting to look at. Um, yeah, and and I mean they they can't they wouldn't be able to afford to sign the best you know closer to a three-year contract anyway. That like that's not really an option. The the choice they really have is to sign. Joe Borowski or and you know to uh, or to sign the best setup guy you know to to get the well I don't know the question is how much the save adds to the price tag if they're paying for saves they're paying for saves right mm-hmm. and well right uh, they're maybe also that's, maybe that's not really an issue but maybe it is they're also kind of keeping costs down potentially with their they're better relievers, right? I mean, if they That's true. if they put Cody Allen in the closer role right now, then he's going to be making more in arbitration, and he's going to be making more as a free agent because he will have those saves. So if they keep him as the setup man and and use him the more or less the same way that they would in the ninth, but in the eighth instead, he will not cost them as much down the road. Um, Arguably I, true. Yeah. Uh, Although I, then Chris Perez just costs more. Right, and and then they can't trade Cody Allen for as much when they want to. But you can you can release Chris Perez. Um, mm. uh, that that Joe Borowski season is 2007. Borowski is maybe one of my favorite seasons. Just just I mean five plus ERA, 45 saves. So not only does that tell you that you can be a closer and get saves without being particularly effective. Um, but then the, the, my favorite part, I think, is that he never really lost the job and he started the next season as the closer. 
which I just I really enjoy. And he got a few saves that season before I guess he got hurt, um, and that was it for him. But that that's uh, that's one of my favorite reliever seasons. Um, so there have been other other reliever moves made that we can analyze as as part of a, a trend, I suppose. So you don't you don't want to know you don't want to know my favorite reliever season. Uh, sure, go ahead. Do you, do you have one? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. My okay. favorite reliever season is uh, Sean Chacon. Oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Thirty-five saves <laughs> with a seven-point-one-one ERA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great one. The right. The the difference is that he never got any saves. He got one save after that, like three years later. Um, fifty-two strikeouts, fifty-two walks. <laughs> yeah well it was course field so hey uh that was only a 70 era plus um, uh-huh. but yeah i i i think the, the the best thing about the borowski season is that he he came back the next year and he said we want yeah. more of that um come to our facebook page and write mike williams name somewhere on there yeah facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild sam won't be there i will um Okay, so there was also a trade between the White Sox and the Diamondbacks involving a reliever. The Diamondbacks traded Matt Davidson for Addison Reed. You wrote about this uh, sort of in the, the context of Kevin Towers' bullpen building. And we we talked about Kevin Towers, I guess, last week and the Diamondbacks last week, so we don't need to, to pile on. But uh, we we could talk about his, his bullpen building specifically, and we—, we well, we got a listener email that I will read about it, but can you sum up uh, how he, the difference between Towers's Padres bullpen building and Arizona bullpen building? Yeah, I I kind of just wanted to do a, a quick retrospective of Kevin Towers in San Diego because we all knew at the time that he seemed to be to have all these like you know really good relievers, but you know we didn't really know what Petco's role was and all of that, and there was always a sense that you know some of these relievers were were overrated. Um, they had to be right because they were coming out of nowhere. We had never heard of any of them and they were putting up like, you know, nine to one strikeout to walk ratios and for, for nothing as rookies and, and all that. And, um, so I wanted to kind of look back at it and, and, and look at that group because it turns out that pretty much all of those guys, um, had, well, I, I pretty much all of those guys had success elsewhere. You know, like uh, this was it seems now that this was not a a Petco creation at all. Like Mike Adams went on to be a very good reliever in Texas and Mujica went on to be a very good reliever in St. Louis. And um, Ryan Webb had, uh, you know, a really good couple years with Florida, a really good year last year with Florida. And uh, Freire is a closer in Anaheim and is significantly better than anybody at the time thought. And um, and. The other guys who, uh, like Thatcher and Gregerson, just left, but both of them brought back you know, pretty good returns, which signals that the league believes in them as well. So this was actually not just a Petco bullpen. This was like he put together this kind of group that spread out. And, uh, and like, like you know how sometimes you'll hear about an NFL coach and all his assistants are you know, 12 years later are, are head coaches of their own. This was like a bullpen that actually fanned out and, and took over the, the, the National League. And so – it uh, it kind of is still amazing to look they had at a, them. They had a nickname. They were they were the penitentiary, <laughs> which is a kind of a terrible 
nickname doesn't really make sense, but they were they were good enough to to have a nickname. You and I actually pronounce that word with a different number of syllables. Uh, penitentiary. That's how I would say it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Okay. Uh, so uh, forgot where I was going. Oh, anyway, so the now, point is that the point is that these guys all cost nothing. I mean, they it it is uh, striking how little they cost him. Uh, you know, arguably the second biggest uh, investment they made was Ernesto Frieri's uh, unreported bonus out of Colombia, which was probably like you know fifteen grand or something. Um, everything else that they gave away was was nothing. I think they they probably traded a total of maybe a hundred innings, hundred major league innings, um, and thirty. Well, and like uh, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred plate appearances for this entire. Uh, unit. So now Kevin Towers uh, has been on a little bit of a losing streak. Um, after it should be noted, coming to Arizona and building a very good bullpen in, in like a year, uh, in 2010, in some degree 11, uh, and uh, seeming to have this knack for it. Um, the last couple of years has been more or less a losing streak when he's uh, he's been the guy giving away good relievers as throw-ins in trades. When he's done reliever for reliever swaps, he's gotten the worst of it, and um, he has uh, been investing more in relievers than he ever did uh, in San Diego. So even if they did turn out like you know Heath Bell did not turn out good, but even if he had, it would have been a much bigger investment than he ever did in his last you know half dozen years in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and Addison Reed arguably is the same. I don't think he. Uh, in in the sort of six year golden years in San Diego with his bullpen, I don't think he ever gave up anything uh, that would qualify as a top hundred prospect uh, mm-hmm. for a reliever either. Um, so uh, I don't know. It's uh, somebody. So we we got an email, and I will break from tradition and read a, a listener email on a on a Tuesday or Wednesday show. Uh, this is from Fuzz, F U Z. Uh, who asked, isn't it maybe that Towers was lucky before and not so lucky now? I know a multiple-year run of good Padre bullpens is compelling, but given reliever performances are fickle, maybe it was luck. And now mm-hmm. he, is, he has lost his touch. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, probably, I mean, my, in, my instinct, well, I mean, I don't think that it's ever any, uh, completely luck. These are guys who got where they are for having some abilities. But uh, yeah, my, I mean, my, feeling probably is that it mostly was luck now I don't think it's necessarily luck that uh, like I think that it was smart and good you know a good strategy to build the bullpen he did as he did I mean it's not luck that he had a bullpen of waiver guys and trade throw-ins that were you know relatively productive and roughly as productive as you know the Angels 25 million dollar bullpen was Um, but it's probably somewhat lucky that yeah sure it's I, I would say it is lucky that uh, that they became as good as they were. Now that said, Heath Bell was a saber darling uh, mm-hmm. before the Padres got him, and Mike Adams was a saber darling before the Padres got him. Um, so neither one of those necessarily uh, was was unexpected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there seemed to be a, a process behind it where he would get these guys who had good minor league stats or it had some success at some level and just weren't weren't valued by their their organizations for whatever reason and would just acquire them for almost nothing and it seemed like it seemed like there was a, a plan there there was like an organizing philosophy 
trading for for undervalued assets there and now i i don't i mean even i'm I'm sure if we had kevin towers on he would he would probably recognize that there is some difference in the way he's approaching it and he's he's giving up more for those guys uh so the question is why um and and i don't know we've we've struggled to to understand uh the things that he has done over the last couple of years it's just it's so many years of team control outgoing and and Reed is a, a young guy too so this isn't the best example of that but they've just they've traded so many years of of team control for fewer years of team control and and that's that's fine if you get back a lot of wins in the short term and you're you're a playoff team and you're competitive and and those wins help you win a division title or something but they're just sort of treading treading water literally last season going from 81 wins to 81 wins and seems like they're about an 81 team 81 win team again um and it, at some point you figure giving up all of those those young guys is going to come back to bite them i would think and if it hasn't paid off in a, a short-term title then then that's not good well, but they're the undisputed favorites in Major League Baseball for 2014. I mean, everybody agrees they're a powerhouse and they can't possibly lose. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Addison Reed was certainly the last piece of this 116-win <laughs> puzzle. Yes. Um, and then the Orioles— I don't hate that, tra- I don't hate that trade, by no, the way. It's, no, it's— Add- it, was more, it was more like the end of this 24-month run of, of transactions that, you know, it sort of punctuated it. But, you know, in isolation— Davidson had nowhere to go. It was a, a reasonable guy to get and well, a reasonable guy to give up. Yeah, I mean, I don't like me that much to be honest, but no, still. neither do I. That, that seems to be the thing is that they keep trading these guys who have nowhere to go, or at least they're somewhat redundant, but they're they don't seem to be getting full value back for them. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know whether they just like kind of want to clear their desk and. Get yeah. the clutter out. Like with... three three numbers on his phone don't work, so he can only call Chicago. <laughs> yeah, uh, but even if a guy is not worth, even if he's not indispensable to you because of of the depth that you have at his position or something, you could you should still try to get full value for him. And I don't know. I mean, presumably they have tried, but it it seems like the results haven't really borne that out. Um, and he had to call. He actually had to call Rick Hahn and ask Rick Hahn to call Atlanta to make the, the Upton trade proposal. Well, and, and that was the fact that uh, this was like a, one in a, a long, the latest in a long string of perplexing Diamondbacks moves, and the latest in what seems like a, a an increasingly long string of of kind of good White Sox moves. Um, which maybe contributed to the perception of this trade a little bit. I, I agree, it wasn't it wasn't a really a, a tremendously lopsided deal, but I liked it better for the White Sox, and I like a lot of the things that the White Sox have done over the last uh, half year or so. Um, I, I don't think they're what, what's your run? What's your, what's uh, your roster of good moves? Well, uh, I like I like the the PV trade. Um, I like trading, trading PV. I like Avisel Garcia. Um, I like, uh, I like the Adam Eaton trade quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and signing Jose Abreu, 
I I don't even really know if I like it because I'm not sure what he's going to be. But if he if he fulfills the sort of potential that some people think he has, that could turn out to be a good move. Um, but I I like that they're trading for for younger players and sort of acknowledging that they need to do that and. The, the farm system is improved, uh, according to people who, who know those things. Um, so I, I like what he's done lately. Just curious, uh, piggybacking off the conversation we had yesterday about GMs, is there a part of you that unfairly thinks that Kenny Williams has, like, no say anymore in the front office and Rick Hahn? <laughs> like, that, that basically what I'm saying is, is there a part of you that unfairly gives all the credit to Rick Hahn and none of the credit to Kenny Williams and thinks, thanks, thank goodness they cleared that? <laughs> that office or, uh, or do you appreciate that Kenny Williams is actually in a position of more power now and might just be doing good work? Yeah, I, I'm sure he, he has had a lot of input on all of these moves. I, I, I don't know. I would feel like, like I imagine myself in that position in that, like moving up and letting someone take over the GM role, but then being a, a team president or whatever. And I feel like I would, I would want to be pretty hands-off, right? Like, I wouldn't want to take that job and then just do the job, continue to do the job, and meddle, sort of. Um, and if I had a lot of confidence in the person who did have the job and had worked with yeah. him for a long time, I feel like I would almost take sort of a an advisory role, but not not quite as active a role as I had had before. So I I would think that that's sort of the, the dynamic there. But um I don't know. It seems like there's been a pretty clear shift in philosophy just from Williams, who was never rebu- never rebuilding, to to Han, who has sort of acknowledged that they needed to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then the Orioles signed Grant Balfour, and you use that as a springboard for some research about what teams are are generally paying for relievers. And you oh, please, test- I, I believe I, I believe it's best referred to as quasi research. <laughs> yes, uh, you came up you came up with an unsubstantiated theory, and then you tested it in a not very rigorous way. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but the conclusion was was still interesting. You 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 uh, you cited a, a piece from a few years ago about how teams were paying much more per win for relievers, and you kind of tried to take a look to see whether that was still the case this this winter. Uh, and what did you find? Yeah. Well, so the piece was by originally by Rich Letterer. And um, Rich Letterer? Yes. There's so many letters. There's a Joe Letterer in my life, and there's a Howard Letterer, and there's a Annie Duke. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have any letterers in my life except this one. Okay. So uh, they're not in my life exactly. They're just not <laughs> uh-huh. aware of them. Uh, so Rich Letterer, um, uh, the the thing that was interesting about Rich Letterer's original piece isn't so much that you know teams were paying more for relievers. It was more that uh, that he was kind of making the point that we that we're using the wrong number when we talked at the time. It was like a four million dollar per win or, or whatever uh, was the going rate, and we would all refer to it as four million a win. And so then they you know someone would sign Matt Holiday, and we'd be like, oh well, it was less than four million a win or more than four million a win. And, uh, use that to kind of conclude something. And his point was that we're using the wrong number because relievers are a totally different market. And uh, when you take them out, everybody else costs quite a bit less. And so mm-hmm. you should be kind of using a, di- a lower number. Um, and so 
I've always had that in the back of my mind and I always forget it and then it comes back and I wonder why we don't pay more attention to that. But um, the one of the things that was talked about with the after Balfour, Balfour's um, signing is that, you know, this was a, a responsible, reasonable signing of a reliever and that that's kind of been the, the norm this offseason. And so I uh, uh, wanted to see whether uh, Letterer's conclusions had had uh, changed at all, if this market was in fact showing um, relievers treated like normal players in terms of uh, value, and I'm not sure they should be, as we've talked about. Maybe it could be that we're not appreciating what a reliever does, uh, mm-hmm. and that that there's a rational reason that 30 GMs all agree, or at least 29 GMs all agree that relievers should be paid a little bit more. Um, so I very, very, very hastily put together a, a way of trying to assign uh, win value to players and then looked at their average annual value and then split them up between relievers and position players and starters. And the relievers are paid way more per win right now. And uh, so that's one thing that you might take from this. The other thing you might take from this is when you hear everybody talking about $7 million per win uh, this offseason, it might actually be $6 million a win except for relievers. So Mm -hmm. you might just keep that in mind when uh Chu signs or whatever the case may be and you want to do the math mm-hmm. and yet it does seem like there hasn't been uh, a whipping boy reliever signing so much this winter except at, at least logan. until boone logan right which mm-hmm. I, I i mentioned a couple days ago but um the other i mean no one has been signed to a longer than longer than a three-year contract as you mentioned um and I, maybe it's could it be because it seems like this was a, a pretty rich reliever market. There were a lot of uh, people with closing experience available. I don't know whether it, it's that that has kept the price down for each of them individually, possibly. Um, but yeah, I didn't like the Logan signing, but the other the other moves I was kind of okay with. Even the three year even the three year deals, the the Javier Lopez signing and. Uh, Joe Smith, I was kind of okay with those. The, the Dodgers signed J.P. Howell to a two-year deal with a vesting option for a third year, which which seemed fine, uh, given what what J.P. Howell was this past season. Um, none of none of the others has really bothered me individually. I think that um, the ones that I think uh, jacked the rate up were, and I don't have my note cards in front of me, but I believe it was, um, uh, Jabba Chamberlain, uh, has been, uh, you know, sub replacement level over the yeah. last two years. I use the last two years mm-hmm. for data, by the way. So, uh, so he, he's, he basically gave zero wins to this, uh, to this math and, uh, Chad Qualls was, uh, has been sub replacement, although he gets mm-hmm. credit for more cause the, dumb way I did this and but but anyway Chad Qualls jacked it up and uh, Matt Albers jacked it up and so those are not big money things but um, all of them were basically giving contributing nothing uh, and costing you know non non trivial money uh, two of them by the Astros incidentally and then uh, Logan was bad and and actually um, Balfour was not good but uh, Warp does not like Balfour and uh, as I ended the transaction analysis, that's not totally unreasonable. So, uh, so his is actually considered high um, based on what he's done. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Uh, well, we've pretty much touched on all of the, the reliever signings. Uh, if there has been a transaction that we haven't talked about, one of us or RJ Anderson has written about it at Baseball Prospectus, so you can you can go find out about it there. Uh, I like the like the Omar Infante move quite a bit. Wrote about that this weekend. Um, RJ wrote about the James Loney deal, which uh, I think he liked more than than I did. Um, wasn't a huge fan of that. Uh, and then everything else is is pretty minor. Uh, the Yankees signed some some old injured guys, <laughs> which which fits the rest of their roster. Um, so that's enough for today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another show, and we welcome your emails to podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Keith Law did a podcast earlier today. He had Nick Procoro on to talk about the Diamondbacks, and then he had John Daniels on to talk about the Rangers. And in both of those conversations, the notion of there not being any power hitters anymore was cited. They were talking about Rangers prospects who hit for power and don't make a lot of contact, and he said something about how there's no power anymore. And then Nick said something about Trumbo and how power's at a premium. Mm -hmm. Are we just wrong about this? Uh, I don't don't care if we're the only ones who say it. It doesn't matter. We can't possibly be wrong. (laughs) John Daniels, pretty smart. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, no, I think that if, if your point is, uh, you know, a point that we've made in other ways that with offense down, we need to mentally adjust our expectations of what is a good hitter and you know, what is not. Yeah. That's legitimate. I mean, Mark Trumbo's power, Mark Trumbo has 50 home run power in 2000. And so if the point is, you know, you don't appreciate what kind of power he has, he's Greg Vaughn. Mm-hmm. then that's legitimate. If your point is that his 36 home runs are more valuable now or whatever, I don't see how that makes sense. So. Yeah. Take that, Daniels. I mean, if he's so good, how come he was the youngest GM ever <laughs> hired? Like, like, <laughs> well, why couldn't he be older? Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Youth is at a premium <laughs> <laughs> in general, general managers. <laughs> <laughs>